0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Peter Atia Drive. I'm your host, Peter Atia. The drive is a result of my hunger for optimizing performance, health, longevity, critical thinking, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working with some of the most successful, top-performing individuals in the world, and this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you live a higher quality, more fulfilling life. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at peteratiamd.com. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Drive. I'd like to take a couple of minutes to talk about why we don't run ads on this podcast and why instead we've chosen to rely entirely on listener support. If you're listening to this, you probably already know, but the two things I care most about professionally are how to live longer and how to live better. I have a complete fascination and obsession with this topic. I practice it professionally, and I've seen firsthand how access to information is basically all people need to make better decisions and improve the quality of their lives. Curating and sharing this knowledge is not easy, and even before starting the podcast, that became clear to me. The sheer volume of material published in this space is overwhelming. I'm fortunate to have a great team that helps me continue learning and sharing this information with you. To take one example, our show notes are in a league of their own. In fact, we now have a full-time person that is dedicated to producing those, and the feedback has mirrored this. So all of this raises a natural question. How will we continue to fund the work necessary to support this? As you probably know, the tried and true way to do this is to sell ads. But after a lot of contemplation, that model just doesn't feel right to me for a few reasons. Now, the first and most important of these is trust. I'm not sure how you could trust me if I'm telling you about something when you know I'm being paid by the company that makes it to tell you about it. Another reason selling ads doesn't feel right to me is because I I, I just know myself. I have a really hard time advocating for something that I'm not absolutely nuts for. So if I don't feel that way about something, I don't know how I can talk about it enthusiastically. So instead of selling ads, I've chosen to do what a handful of others have proved can work over time and that is to create a subscriber support model for my audience. This keeps my relationship with you both simple and honest. If you value what I'm doing, you can become a member and support us at whatever level works for you. In exchange, you'll get the benefits above and beyond what's available for free. It's that simple. It's my goal to ensure that no matter what level you choose to support us at, you will get back more than you give. So, for example, members will receive Full access to the exclusive show notes, including other things that we plan to build upon, such as the downloadable transcripts for each episode. These are useful beyond just the podcast, especially given the technical nature of many of our shows. Members also get exclusive access to listen to and participate in the regular Ask Me Anything episodes. That means asking questions directly into the AMA portal. And also getting to hear these podcasts when they come out. Lastly, and this is something I'm really excited about. I want my supporters to get the best deals possible on the products that I love. And as I said, we're not taking ad dollars from anyone. But instead, what I'd like to do is work with companies who make the products that I already love and would already talk about for free and have them pass savings on to you. Again, the podcast will remain free to all. But my hope is that many of you will find enough value in one, the podcast itself, and two, the additional content exclusive for members to support us at a level that makes sense for you. I want to thank you for taking a moment to listen to this. If you learn from and find value in the content I produce, please consider supporting us directly by signing up for a monthly subscription. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing two people, Dr. Avram Blooming and Dr. Carol Tavris. And if Carol's name sounds familiar to you, it's because it should. I've spoken about her often as she is the author of one of my absolute favorite books, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And if you haven't read it, I recommend you hit pause now, go and buy it, come back. Carol's a social psychologist and an overall great skeptic. Her collaborator in this project, which we'll get to, is Dr. Avram Blooming, who's a hematologist, medical oncologist, and an emeritus clinical professor at USC. He's also formerly a senior investigator at the National Cancer Institute. The book we discuss today is their most recent project, a book called Estrogen Matters, which, as its name suggests, is a book about hormones. And in particular, it's a book about hormone replacement therapy in women. Now, I realize at this moment, about half the people listening to this, i.e., those of you who are guys, are thinking, do I really need to listen to this episode? And the short answer is, I think you do at the very least, if you know a woman or care about a woman, you should be listening to this episode. Why? Because in many ways, this topic has created as much confusion and generated as much bad information as any topic in medicine. And yes, I am including nutrition science, which is the absolute bottom of our understanding of science and the sort of parallels between the story of HRT and the nutritional guidelines in the 70s and 80s is almost uncanny. And that comes across during this interview when Carol and Abram tell a story that I I had either forgotten or didn't know. The book is written in, I think, a very clear way. And I do recommend that anyone who is interested in this topic, you know, not just take our word for it in this episode, but instead get the book and go through the references. I spent a lot of time Utilizing my team to help prepare for this interview because, as familiar as I am with this topic, and I think I'm more familiar with this topic than most physicians, I still felt the volume of information was just so great that I wanted to make sure I had gone back and read all of the studies in preparation for this. And in many ways, I'm glad I did because it allowed us to really get into some of the details here. And hopefully, do so in a way that isn't confusing for you, but rather at least opens the door to your thinking about this. This is a very polarizing topic. It is almost a religion. So, you will see that there are people on both sides of this that are pure zealots. And unfortunately, that just makes it that much more difficult to sort of interpret the literature on this. But in the end, you will have to be the judge of this. It is certainly my view, and I don't hide that view anymore, that most women do benefit from being on postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy, but not all women do. And I think one of the challenges for physicians and patients alike is trying to stratify which patients will receive much more benefit than the risk that's posed to them. And of course, perhaps as importantly, identifying the patients for whom the risk is outweighed or is disproportionate rather to the benefits. The interview largely covers the subject material covered in their book, which is to say the history of hormone replacement therapy, the impetus for the women's health initiative, a very serious critique of not just the initial publication, but the subsequent publications, and then a little bit of a deep dive into each of the clinical conditions for which hormone replacement therapy should at least be considered. And of course, I think the most important of these is in not just cardiovascular disease, which gets a lot of attention, but neurodegenerative disease. And I think Avram makes a very compelling case for that. So without further delay, here's my interview with Dr. Avram Blooming and Dr. Carol Tavris. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to remind everyone that one of the benefits of being a subscriber is a discount program that we've created. Now, the purpose of this was to take The money that companies have offered to pay for advertising and say, look, instead of doing that, I'd rather just talk about the companies that have products that I love and use without being paid to do so and say, take that money that you would have given us in advertising and pass that on to discounts as listeners. So the first one's coming out this Wednesday. And if you're not a subscriber yet, that's okay. You've got plenty of time to sign up. Head on over to peteratiamd.com forward slash subscribe, where you can have access to this discount and future discounts. And now let's get to this week's episode with Carol and Abram. Hey guys, thank you so much for making the trip down from LA today.
1: We're happy to do it.
0: This is one of the topics that I have been meaning to explore so deeply over the past two or three years through what was originally going to be a multi-part blog post and a number of other things. And there always was a reason not to do it. And then you and I spoke about a year ago, Carol, and I said, Carol, I'd love to interview you about mistakes were made. And your response was, I can't talk about that book anymore. I'm so tired of it. All I want to do is think and, you know, think about this new thing that I'm really excited about, which is estrogen matters. And I must admit I was embarrassed at that point to acknowledge, I didn't realize you had been working on it, even though I had read the paper that you guys had written in 2009, which we were talking about a few minutes ago. So it was sort of an aha moment for me. And I was delighted because I thought, well, you're going to do a much better job than I would have done, you know, because you're going to put so much more work into it. So I guess for the listener that's not familiar with you, Carol, let's start with you, Carol. You're a psychologist,
1: social psychologist, social
0: psychologist. What's a social psychologist writing about estrogen for?
1: My lifelong interest has been in bringing good scientific research in psychology and medicine to public attention. And as you well know, this is an effort that is not always greeted with huzzas and cheers. And thank you ever so much for showing us that our beliefs are wrong and our time to be replaced. But it's my lifelong quest, and that's what I do. And that's, of course, what mistakes were made, but not by me, was about why it is that people resist new information that is better to know, that is beneficial, that improves our knowledge. And that's been my life work. And as a social psychologist, I have always been interested in the barriers to critical thinking and the reasons that people do not accept information when it is in their best interest to do so. So knowing Avram Blooming, for as many years as I have, we have discussed over the years how our shared interest, his in medicine and mine in psychology, uh, reflect the same concerns. What happens when research calls into question some established belief that is widespread in our society?
0: You know, I know I've told you this before, but I'll I'll, I'll repeat it, that mistakes were made, but not by me as would certainly be on the list of the three books I have recommended and or gifted the most. And in fact, I remember reading it and just somehow finding out how to get a hold of you and just calling you and emailing you and inviting you over for dinner. (laughs) You must have thought that was the weirdest thing ever.
1: Not at all. I was very flattered and pleased, by the way. And by the way, this work on estrogen that Avram has so excited me about could be a chapter in that book.
0: It actually is, as are as other things that we have discussed, for example, dietary recommendations and things like that, that I know you have contemplated going back on and thinking about that. So Avram, what, what about you? I, tell, tell us a little bit about your your background, your training as a, as a clinician, and and why in particular this issue has become something that's resonated with you.
2: I'm a medical oncologist. I've spent over 50 years as a medical oncologist, and my reason for going into the field was to help people live as long and as well as possible, enlisting them, helping to decide how best they should be treated. And breast cancer constitutes about 60% of my practice. And I've watched the progress in breast cancer, very happily noting how many people we now cure. And in fact, our early breast cancer now is about 90% curable. And I found that while I was making a lot of people better in terms of the cancer, I was making them worse in terms of the symptoms associated with the treatments they got. And when you treat something for that long, you want to understand what it is so that you can treat it most effectively. And first, let me say at the beginning, I'm a medical oncologist And I don't yet know what cancer is. And I'm in very good company because I don't know anybody who knows what cancer is, even though many will tell you they do, and they're wrong. And so it was important that I challenge every assumption on which my practice was based. And I've done that continuously. And the major assumption dealing with breast cancer is that estrogen causes breast cancer and it doesn't. And almost everything we've done in the treatment of breast cancer is based on that assumption, so that women have been denied estrogen for at least the last 30 years, but especially since 2002. And the result is that many women have been hurt by being denied that medicine.
0: So let's take a step back in history now, because in your 2009 paper, it's actually the second table. I was actually reviewing it again this morning. It's a beautiful time course of hormone replacement therapy in women. So I'll let you guys decide how you want to tell the story together, but let's go back to at least the 1940s or the 1950s. How did this idea of, hey, women go through a pretty abrupt withdrawal of hormones. Let's take a moment to Think about how we can make that better. How did that idea come about?
2: I think to give us perspective, let's compare men and women. The number of women with breast cancer in the United States is approximately comparable on an annual basis to the number of men with prostate cancer. Uh, The number of women who die of breast cancer each year is also approximately comparable to the number of men who die of prostate cancer. We like simple answers, all of us. And to think that testosterone is responsible for prostate cancer and estrogen is responsible for breast cancer is a very simple way to go about dealing with this. And what we found is metastatic cancer of the prostate was initially treated with castration. If testosterone causes prostate cancer, taking off the testicles eliminates the testosterone. And in fact, it helps. Doesn't cure, but it helps in some cases. Similarly, we castrated women. Estrogen is made in the ovaries. If we remove the ovaries, we can cause breast cancer to regress once it has spread. And it does help. Not in many cases, but in a significant number, it helps. As far as cancer of the prostate is concerned, that's where we stopped. If castration didn't help, we did what we could to palliate. With breast cancer, what we did if castration didn't help, we went on and removed the adrenal glands of women. Now, the adrenal glands make a small percentage of circulating estrogen, and by the way, they also make a small percentage of circulating testosterone. We never remove the adrenal glands of men. We remove the adrenal glands of women, and as you know, there are hormones made by the adrenal gland that are necessary for survival. So once you remove the adrenal gland, you have to replace the hormones that were necessary for survival, and we did that. If the adrenal gland removal didn't work, we then would take out the anterior pituitary gland at the base of the brain because that gland produces a hormone that stimulates either the ovary or the testicle to make the responsible hormone. And so we used to do hypophysectomies. And while I was in practice, we did that. And as you know, the anterior pituitary makes many hormones that are necessary for survival. So we had to replace many of those hormones, and we didn't really help too many women with that. Let me reiterate We did nothing like that for men, and we hurt a lot of women by doing that. We did it with good intentions, but we hurt them. What we then found is when women had breast cancer because we were concerned that it might come back, we prophylactically removed their ovaries, saying, well, if estrogen causes breast cancer, this will help prevent it from coming back. And we tested that with seven different studies. None of those studies showed that it worked. Did we ever treat men by prophylactically castrating them? Never. And we never will, because men still control medicine by and large. So we were doing a lot with good intentions and hurting women. We then were looking at what estrogen is capable of doing, and this goes back to your question, Back in the 1940s, there was a book written called Feminine Forever that essentially said, well, women should take estrogen forever, and it'll be an eternal fountain of youth. That's not true. That book was oversold. The doctor who wrote that book was paid for by the drug company who made estrogen, and we didn't know that until his son told that to the press after he died. But estrogen did do some very good things. And what we found estrogen is capable of doing is, first, estrogen can relieve the symptoms of menopause. The way menopausal symptoms are viewed as well, it's hot flashes and night sweats, and it'll usually last a year or two, and tough it out, lady, and you'll get through it. And point the fact, there are many symptoms associated with menopause that aren't just hot flashes and night sweats. It includes palpitations. It includes cognitive decline. It includes joint pains.
0: Sleep disturbances. Yeah, right. Lots of things.
2: And it usually lasts about seven and a half years, not two years. And in some women, it goes on for decades. And women are taught to suck it up and deal with that. Estrogen is also capable of reducing significant heart disease by up to 50%. There was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1991 by Goldman and Tosteson that said, time for action, not debate, saying if women took estrogen, they would live longer, they would be healthier. That was 1991. And we now know that estrogen has been shown repeatedly to help diminish the risk for significant heart conditions.
0: So let's pause for a moment because I want to make sure that people listening to this, and um, I hope it's not just uh, women, but it should be men as well. Unless you're a man who finds himself not knowing any women, then maybe you won't listen to this. But let's explain what these hormones do a little bit. So there are not many papers that I have printed out in my office because we just don't print papers up that much anymore. You know, we don't physically have a paper copy, but there are a handful that I have printed up. And one of them, of course, is the WHI, both the 2002 and then some of the republications, because I do like to show people the actual data, which I think speak for themselves. But another thing that I have printed up is the hormone cycle for a woman during her reproductive years. And I started doing this about three years ago, and I was surprised how many Women didn't know what estrogen was doing in their body, how it would rise during the follicular phase, peak during ovulation, decline during luteal phase, and come up for a second bump before declining at their period. And similarly, how progesterone would would follow a small thing. Now, we're gonna link to images of that in the show notes, but the point I want to make is, you know, women go through this for what, 35 years of their lives, maybe longer, maybe 40 years of their lives, and I guess I was just surprised that I remember having a patient who was complaining of horrible PMS. And so I said, well, it has to do with the reduction of progesterone. And in some women, the fall of progesterone during the end of the luteal phase is so rapid that for reasons we don't understand, that's going to produce a change in something. And you can ameliorate that by doing X, Y, and Z. And the woman looked at me and she was like, this is incredible. Like you've made me feel like I'm not crazy because you've shown me this graph that explains what's happening with my progesterone levels. So I do want to make sure that someone listening to this spends a moment to understand what we're actually talking about. You have these hormones that we're going to hear, you know, we're going to talk about luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone. You've alluded to these already coming out of the pituitary, telling the ovaries to make these other hormones. And and really, is it safe to say at the risk of oversimplifying the reason it seems that women only experience this during a finite period of their life is that's kind of when evolution wanted women to be able to reproduce. Without this cycle of rising estrogen, progesterone, falling levels, women wouldn't be able to reproduce. Is the risk of oversimplifying, is that a fair statement of why they have, we have this finite window?
1: Finite window of
0: during which time women have these hormones, versus men who have kind of, you know, men have a much more gradual decline in their reproductive hormones.
1: This is a crucial thing to say, Peter. This is really important. This was something I didn't realize until we began working on this book. I assumed that in menopause, estrogen declines. I think that's the way women see it. It just declines the way testosterone declines in a slow, moderate way. No, estrogen plummets to 1% of what it was before menopause. I think most women have no idea that it's that great a drop in estrogen levels. And no wonder that many of the symptoms that women have, which, by the way, include depression, and they attribute it to a, well, it's a midlife crisis I'm having. No, it could be an estrogen depletion crisis as well. And so I think it's really important for women to understand that this is not just a a little fall-off. It's really a, a major drop. I want to add one thing here to this, because as the social psychologist of this duo, what interests me is the way women have been given false information for so many years about so many aspects of their reproductive cycle and experience, that it's no wonder that many women have a great skepticism about what medicine has to offer them. In reproductive issues. Just what Avram was saying about there was so little hesitation in cutting women up and removing this part and removing that part. Let's try this other thing, things that would never have been tried with men, that men would just never have agreed to. And so women have had an understandable skepticism about the medical establishment's advice. And starting with Feminine Forever, Robert Wilson's ridiculous song of praise to estrogen, women began to think, well, you know what? The hell with all of you on this. Estrogen is, I don't need it. It doesn't make me feminine forever. And who dares to think that I need to be feminine forever in that traditional way? And menopause is just a natural phase of life. And I can deal with it as I dealt with the onset of menstruation. So what I want our conversation to bring here is an understanding of why women have been kind of whipped back and forth on whether estrogen is good for them or bad for them.
0: And tying onto that, we left out another grotesque example of this, which Sid Mukherjee has written about so eloquently in The Emperor of All Maladies, which is the radical mastectomy, which ties into all of this. You know, Avram, the points you brought up a moment ago, I wasn't even aware of the pituitary resections. I was aware of the oophorectomies, of course. I had no idea they were resecting adrenal glands, which strikes me as ridiculous, but to actually resect the pituitary gland, I mean, that's macabre. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Transphenoid resections. I mean, it's just hard to believe. And yet lost in that story, which should be added just to complete the sentences. And up until Bernard Fisher came along, it was viewed as completely nonsensical that you would do anything other than disfigure a woman with breast cancer by removing every piece of tissue above her rib cage. It's an interesting point you raise, right? Which I never really had contemplated, truthfully, which is, could that have taken place if the roles were reversed gender-wise? I'd never really thought of it.
1: Think also about hysterectomies, the routine use of hysterectomy on the assumption that a woman, once she's had her children, doesn't need to have her uterus. And by the way, since we're removing your uterus, let's remove your ovaries as well, because what the hell, they're just there, let's take them out, as if they have no function. That casual attitude of let's just get in there and get rid of
0: it. And the term hysterectomy, you want to maybe provide a bit of context for the listener on what that means?
1: Well, hysteria was thought to be caused by the wandering womb, which detaches itself and wanders through the female body, causing mayhem and despair. Yeah, yeah. Part of our more ludicrous notions about the female body. The point is women weren't treated fairly,
2: and they're still not being treated fairly. And just to amplify one point I made, uh, I mentioned that uh, estrogen can significantly decrease the risk of heart disease. What many women tell me at that point is, well, old women die of heart disease, young women die of breast cancer. I'd rather not take estrogen if estrogen causes breast cancer. And the answer to that is twofold. First, estrogen does not cause breast cancer, and we'll get into that in detail. But more than that, in every decade of a woman's life, the incidence of death from heart disease is greater than the incidence of death from breast cancer.
0: I want to reiterate this point. It's it's like you were reading my mind in preparing for this discussion. I, I did something I normally don't do. I normally don't put as much time into prep, but this is such a data-driven discussion. And, and, and the data are just so voluminous that I, I really had to spend a lot of time preparing, and, and my team helped me greatly. But I have a chart that we will include in the show notes, which makes your point very eloquently. If you begin at the age of 25, you take a cohort of 25 year old women and you forward looking project their 10 year mortality from breast cancer and from cardiovascular disease by decade, I'm going to read off the difference in favor of cardiovascular disease. So if the number is greater than one, you'll die more likely to die of a heart attack than breast cancer. If it's less than one more breast cancer, starting at the age of 25, going up in five-year increments with a 10-year forward look, 3.5X, 3.5 times more likely to die of heart disease, 2.4X, 2.1X, 2.3X, 2.5X, 2.8X, 2.4X, 2.1X. We're now at 35 years old, 2.3, 2.5, 2.2, 3.3 3.3 by 55, 4.1 by 60, 5.6 by 65, 8.1 by 70, and 12.4 by 75. When you do the math on aggregate across lifetime, it's 7x difference in favor of cardiovascular disease over breast cancer. Where are the red ribbons?
2: Heart disease kills more women than the next 16 causes of death, including all forms of cancer, AIDS, and accidents.
0: The other thing people listening to this know how near and dear heart disease is to my heart because it is the number one killer for both men and women, there's another area where I think women get a bit of a short straw here, which is women present with heart disease quite differently. Do you want to say something about that?
2: Sure. The typical presentation of a man is crushing chest pain, pain that goes down the left arm starting at the left shoulder women can often present with an upset stomach. Uh, And because we generally don't think of women as suffering from heart disease, the diagnosis is initially missed quite often, although doctors are getting more and more sensitive to that now.
0: All right. So I, I took us off a bit of a detour Carol, your point's a great one. I want to come back to make for the first time in my career, because I don't treat many women going through menopause, but any woman who's a patient of mine who's going through it, I'm going to be a part of it. But this past year, I got to see firsthand how quickly a woman can enter menopause. Because if you happen to do labs on women frequently enough, you can see the drop. So I had a patient who in August of 2017, I I like to check labs on what would be day five so I can really standardize where the FSH and estradiol should be. She had what looked like completely normal levels. Her FSH was, you know, something in the neighborhood of 10. Her estradiol was maybe 90. She was starting to have symptoms though. So I said to her, look, you are very likely in a perimenopausal state. I expect you will enter menopause in the next three or four years. She was probably 47. Rechecked her blood in November. Her FSH was 68. Her estradiol was unmeasurable. I rechecked the labs because I couldn't believe it. Same result. Reached out to one of my mentors, a gynecologist named Riley Lloyd in Chicago. And I said, Riley, what has happened here? And he goes, you just happened to see her fall off the cliff. This happens all the time. It's just, we usually aren't looking at laboratory tests that frequently. So it's an interesting point, and I'm glad you emphasized it.
1: And also, you know, you cannot say exactly at what age. One of the women we describe in the book who wrote a blog about this, Katie Taylor, who said, she was 42. She was extremely depressed. She was having all sorts of symptoms. She was treated for her depression with antidepressants. That didn't do anything. Her doctor said, maybe you should quit your job. That will help your your stress levels. Oh, sure. Um, and fortunately, her father uh, is a leading breast cancer specialist in England. And he said, you know what? You could be in perimenopause. And she was. And she was. So many of the symptoms that women begin to develop in their 40s They don't associate with menopause. Muscle pain sends them to rheumatologists, and depression sends them to therapists, and fighting with their spouses sends them to family therapy, and they don't think that their changes of menopause might be involved. I want to say, by the way, that I am one of the minority of women who sailed through menopause with no symptoms, and my mother as well. And so I underestimated how many women really suffer. It's not a verb I like to use much, but many women suffer with the symptoms of menopause, which I never did. And I think that many of the women who are kind of casual about menopause, oh, you don't need to take anything. This too will pass. This too will pass. Easy for you to say if you're not sleeping for seven years.
0: Well, that's really interesting, Carol. I, didn't, I wasn't going to ask you that on the mic, but I was planning to actually ask you that after, which was, what is your personal experience with this and how much of a role has that played in your motivation? And I'm interpreting your answer to mean, your motivation for this is more in the in the spirit of truth-seeking than it is a personal vendetta.
1: Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's the first thing people want to know is, do you have a vested interest in this? Do you want to defend your own decision to be taking hormones? You know, Are you getting money from the drug companies? So let's make this very clear here now. Neither of us has a vested interest in this. Neither of us has taken any money from drug companies. I have been a vociferous critic of big pharma and a lot of its manipulations of uh, research and its inflated claims. And no, I don't have a personal interest in defending HRT. In fact, as a feminist psychologist for many years, I was really critical of the kind of take it for granted assumption that once a woman hits menopause, then you got to fill her tank with hormones to get her back to being a real woman. I was very critical of that, which was easy for me to do when I was 35.
0: And Avram, I want to just maybe give you the chance to say the same sort of thing. You've obviously provided a a CV that provides an interesting explanation for why you would care about this, given the volume of patients you would have taken care of. But is there something more personal? Was there a particular patient that sort of broke your heart, meaning the experience that she went through broke your heart? And is something that you think about a lot as you're on this crusade?
2: Some particular thing, no. But in fairness, let me tell you that when my wife reached 45, she had breast cancer. And she was treated by me with chemotherapy, and she went into menopause. And unlike Carol, she was very symptomatic, and she didn't complain for two years. She had the night sweats, the difficulty sleeping, the joint pains, the palpitations, but women are supposed to suck that up and take it, and she did. And then she started to find that reading, which is her passion, was now being challenged because when she'd read a book, she couldn't remember what she had read two or three pages before. She did numbers in her head. She's one of the smartest people I know. And she was unable to remember telephone numbers. And that's when she spoke to me. And she is one of the first people I put on a study, which we'll get to later, Uh, which is a study of hormone replacement therapy in women with a history of successfully treated breast cancer. And it took about two weeks and she was back and she would never go off them.
0: So I guess while we're on that topic, I'm gonna tell my story of why I started to care about this so deeply. A woman came to me about five years ago who had survived an ERPR positive breast cancer. So for the listener, that means she had a breast cancer that showed sensitivity to estrogen, progesterone. Um, It was not her two new, I believe. So it was ERPR positive, her two new negative. She was very young. She was probably in her early forties at the time of this diagnosis. She underwent a hysterectomy, oophorectomy at the time. She also underwent her mastectomies. She basically became lost. So she described it to me. This was before I knew her. She described it to me as being unable to get off the couch. She described the fog of being something that her doctors at the time attributed to chemotherapy. And they said to her, once the chemo is done, you will feel better. Three years after the chemo, she felt worse. And it finally occurred to her and to her husband, that maybe this had something to do with the fact that it the age of 42, overnight, she lost every sex hormone in her body. She couldn't find any doctor on the planet who would prescribe hormone replacement therapy to her because as a breast cancer survivor, who's ERPR positive, how could you do such a thing? Though she did eventually find someone who was willing to give her a trial. She felt immediately better. I mean, immediately better, sort of as you describe it within weeks, she felt like she got her life back, could do everything again. And by the time I met her, she was on a very clever regimen, which was mostly estriol. So topical estriol, not estradiol. And we can get into the details of that later, along with, she didn't need the progesterone, obviously, because she had hysterectomy and the physiologic replacement of testosterone to reduce sort of about to about half an nanogram per deciliter level. And her case interested me so much because I started thinking, wait a minute, isn't she increasing her risk of breast cancer? And I won't get into the details of where that took me, which rabbit hole, but it obviously in some way led to a converging discussion that we're having today. So I want to go back to, now we're in the 1950s. You've got the snake oil salesman out there. He's telling every woman she must be on estrogen. When did the tide change? Or when did the nuance start to emerge about different levels of replacement?
2: In the 1970s, uh, let's just go back, uh, Premarin which is an acronym for pregnant mare urine, which was an inexpensive way to manufacture a lot of estrogen and was, and still is, the dominant form of estrogen sold in the United States. And that is the company. The company that makes Premarin is the one that was supporting Robert Wilson. Premarin was being used on women who were going into menopause. And in the early 1970s, we found that there was a significant rise in the incidence of uterine cancer. And as you mentioned, estrogen alone does increase the risk of uterine cancer as much by as fivefold. And so estrogen prescriptions fell off dramatically in the early 1970s. By the late 1970s, We had learned that giving progesterone together with estrogen, either on a cyclic or a continuous regimen, nullified that increased risk of uterine cancer. And so at the end of the 1970s, hormone replacement therapy started to increase again. It continued that way until about 2002, and in 2002, it is estimated that about 16 million women in the United States were taking hormone replacement therapy, either estrogen alone if they didn't have a uterus or the combination if they did have a uterus. And that constituted about 22% of the appropriate age population in the United States. That was 2002. By 2004, it was down from 22% to 10%. By 2010, it was down to 5%, and that was due primarily to the publication of a single large study called the Women's Health Initiative, which you alluded to earlier.
1: Now,
0: prior to that, there was a large cohort-based study called the Nurses' Health Study, and many people looked at that and said, when you look at the Nurses' Health Study, which is an epidemiologic study, so there was no randomization— the benefits of hormone replacement therapy for women who had a uterus or estrogen replacement therapy for women who did not seemed quite compelling. And didn't some people actually ask the question, is it even ethical to conduct a women's health initiative, which would, by definition, subject some women to a placebo arm?
2: Two things to that. First, the Nurses' Health Study was a study that was done out of Harvard, where uh, 120,000 nurses were followed for up to 30 years. And yes, it wasn't randomized, but the thought was that nurses were sophisticated enough to be able to report symptoms and to keep careful count of the medicines they were taking. And it's a classic study. It still is. And what they found, as you point out, is women who took it for 5 years or 10 years or 15 years had no increased risk of breast cancer. And so when the Women's Health Initiative was first undertaken, the ostensible rationale was not to see whether it increased breast cancer. What they wanted to see is, did it really have a beneficial effect on the heart and the brain and the bones? That's the reason it was set up. And there were some studies that said it did, and there were two studies that questioned whether it did. And so the theoretical rationale, and I say theoretical because there were motives that weren't immediately apparent when it was first set up, but the theoretical rationale was to see if it was as good as we thought it was.
0: Now, one of the things that I didn't learn until probably three years ago, because my first interest in the Women's Health Initiative was in the nutritional study which was by budget, the smaller of the two. I think you probably know these numbers. I'm probably guessing somewhat, but the WHI was about a $2.5 billion study. Is that correct? was $1 billion. Just $1 billion for both arms. <laughs> right. Compared just, to the yeah, wall, to it's
2: me. not a lot, but it's still a billion dollars.
0: Okay. I, I thought for some reason the $1 billion was just one arm and the, and the other one. But nevertheless, it was really two completely separate studies, right? There was the nutritional study, which we're not going to get into, and then there was the study that you are talking about. This was initiated in what year? About 92? 96. 96. Okay. And the fact that I'm alluding to, or the fact that I was alluding to a second ago that I'll get to now, that when I saw it three years ago, I thought that has to be a mistake, was the, the quality of the health of the women enrolled in that study. Do you want to say a, a little bit about... For example, the prevalence of obesity, smoking, hypertension, and other conditions.
1: Their average age was 63, 10 years after the average age of a woman entering menopause. 70% of them were seriously overweight or obese. Uh, More than half were smokers. Uh, They had high rates of hypertension. And this was not an ideal healthy sample
2: by any means. In fairness if they were looking to see the benefit on heart disease, what they said was, well, we're going to take an older population because the incidence of heart events would be greater in that population. We would see a difference sooner between the women who were on hormones and those who weren't. And so for economic reasons, it made sense to choose an older population, but this was never a normal population. And as soon as the study came out in 2002, it was immediately extrapolated to all women
0: everywhere. And there's one other detail about this study that I think you you will shed more light on, and you do so in your book, which when I first read it, I thought that can't be right. But women who were especially symptomatic were excluded Because of a concern that if you took in women who had serious vasomotor symptoms and they were randomized to the placebo, your dropout rate would be too high. Is that correct? That's
2: correct. And that would be all right if you acknowledge that up front. But three years after the study was first published, there was a study saying that it has absolutely no benefit on quality of life. And the first question when you read that is, what planet were these people living on? And the reason they found that is because women who were significantly symptomatic were excluded for just the reason you stated, that if they had been randomized to placebo, the fear was they would stop the placebo and drop out of the study. And so what the report said is, well, among these women the majority of whom were not symptomatic, we found no improvement in the symptoms that weren't there. But the New York Times headlined it, saying hormones have no benefit even on quality of life. By the way, the 13% of the women who were symptomatic had a significant improvement, but they were lost among the entire population. Yeah,
0: you, you would have been very statistically underpowered to catch them because- yeah they represent such a small subset of the cohort
1: let me let me just give you one bit of of history here when the women's health initiative it did one of these stop the presses thing you know we've found this increased risk of hormones on uh, breast cancer so we have to stop our study immediately and have press conference and announce this this uh, this terrifying finding okay and i remember clearly avram uh, calling me up and saying carol they're announcing this alleged increase in the risk of breast cancer, number one, the journal article *Jinjama* has not even been published yet. You could not go directly to the journal itself and look up the findings for yourself. This is a big no-no in scientific communication and publication. But also, the increased risk, this alleged increased risk of breast cancer was not statistically significant. It wasn't statistically significant. In my business, you don't get to go into publication and say, gee, you know, we didn't get any significant results here. We found something that looks problematic or interesting and maybe we need to do more research, but not significant. And that's what really first gave us pause. Why are they... Heralding this strange finding for what purpose and why are we wanting to scare an audience in advance of actually offering the real data? And that's what got our skeptical neurons flaring.
0: I want to come back because we're going to go really deep on the difference between absolute risk, relative risk, the difference between the CEE versus the CEE plus MPA. I want to go deep on that. But I want to pause here for a moment to ask you an honest question, which is you hear this and it stinks of conspiracy theory, except that I'm the most anti-conspiracy theory guy out there. I typically attribute to incompetence rather than malice. You know, I mean, like it's, Oswald killed Kennedy. There's no two ways about it. We don't want to believe that. We want to create a bigger narrative because Kennedy was so significant and Oswald was so insignificant. But the reality of it is conspiracy theories almost never hold up. Was there a conspiracy? I mean, I'm using the word loosely and I'm trying to, I'm asking it in a loaded way. But when you look back at it through the lens of what we know today, it seems improbable that this cluster could have taken place. I
1: think they were behaving just like scientists who went into this research with a strong belief that HRT is harmful to women and in particular increases the risk of breast cancer. Jacques Rousseau, who was the cardiologist who led the Women's Health Initiative, had published an article in, I don't remember which medical, 1996, basically saying it's time to bring the HRT bandwagon to a halt. The HRT bandwagon. He says, Too many women are are on HRT, this is not a good thing, and it's time to it's time to stop the rolling bandwagon. So he himself clearly had some kind of bias going into the direction of this study. I don't think it's a it's not a conspiracy. You, as a reader of mistakes were made, but not by me, know that when <laughs> you go into a research project with a belief that you really are sure of. You see in the data what you expect to see in the data. I mean, I remember years ago, the first book I ever wrote, which was on anger. In those days, people thought that ulcers were caused by suppressed anger. And I would go and look at these journal articles. These were not malevolent people or fraudulent researchers, but they so deeply believed that suppressed anger causes ulcers that they would say, well, we didn't actually get a significant result here, but it's looking like that's what it would be if it were significant.
2: I mean, really. Let me add two things to that, if I can. First, uh, the article says, this is the 2002 article of the Women's Health Initiative, says that this increased risk of breast cancer almost reached nominal statistical significance. I don't know of any other article anywhere that states that. Statistically significant doesn't mean it's true, but it means the finding has a less than one in 20 chance of being a coincidence, so it's worthy of investigation. But almost reach nominal statistical significance, that sounds like you're straining to reach a conclusion that you didn't reach.
0: But there had to be other accomplices here. So on some level, the journals had to at least make a case here. By the way, out of curiosity, why did this end up in JAMA, not New England Journal of Medicine, the initial publication? Any
2: They've published in both JAMA and the New England Journal of
0: Medicine. Yeah, but the first one. Why The first one was
2: JAMA. Hmm. JAMA may have accepted it first. And JAMA came out with the press release. I don't know of any other situation where JAMA or the New England Journal came out with a press release before the published article was available to doctors to
1: read. Well, and you saw, of course, in our chapter on this, Robert Langer, writing last year, why he waited so long, we don't know. But he was one of the investigators who revealed the background story about this. There were 40 principal investigators distributed across the country. They were summoned to a meeting to discuss the paper that was going to appear in JAMA. They were told for the first time what this article was going to consist of. It had been written by three members of the writing committee for the Women's Health Initiative. They said. You you can't do this and they were told, Well, okay, let's see, it's nine AM. You have until noon to read this report and offer your criticisms. And at noon, when they offered whatever they could put together in three hours, they were told too late. The article's been published in JAMA and it's at the warehouse, ready to be sent out. So for conspiracy who most of the investigators themselves never saw that first JAMA article I invited
2: one of those three investigators to come speak at my local hospital several months after the study was published and he was asked by one of the doctors in the audience about the significance of the findings and how come This was published around the world. It was responsible for a 50 to 70% drop in hormone prescriptions, and yet it looks as though the data aren't statistically significant. What am I missing, the doctor asked, and he was told by one of the three, you know, this is the most expensive study ever done. By the time we're finished, it will cost about a billion dollars. And so If we think we have found something and the results don't quite add up, and this is a direct quote, the statistical police have to leave the room. And the medical audience was
0: aghast. Who were the three writing authors of the study?
2: Rowan Schlabowski was the doctor who's a professor at UCLA who was talking. Uh, Jacques Rousseau uh, was the principal investigator. And... I'm not sure.
1: Garnet Anderson, no?
2: Garnet Anderson was the statistician. I'd have to check and see if she was one of the three.
1: She was one on the press release anyway. Yes. She was the one who said, what, sort of when asked about these findings, she said, well, when it's an issue as important to women as breast cancer, we intentionally set the bar low if there's any dangerous information that we found any danger, we set the bar low. No, no, that's not how you do a study.
0: What's sort of disturbing when in reliving this story, because I read your book like six months ago, so I feel like I'm reliving this. This bears an uncanny resemblance to another story that took place in the mid 80s when the dietary guidelines were being set. And there was basically an NIH consensus that took place. And I was giving a a talk, it was a Grand Rounds at UCSD in 2011, I believe, or maybe 2012. And I gave the talk about how there was this consensus and everybody went in a room and 36 hours later they came out with this consensus. But the problem was the consensus didn't match the data. It wasn't orthogonal to the data, but it was very far from what the data were. And I believe it was Mark Hegstead, who's no longer alive, who at the press conference said when asked something about, don't you feel like maybe we need to know the answer a little bit more? And he basically made a similar argument, which was with the stakes being as high as they are, we don't have time to wait for definitive answers. So I give the, I give my talk after the talk, a woman comes up to me and she says, I was an endocrinologist at NIH and I was one of the, and I can't remember how many people were in the room, call it, you know, 40 people or whatever. I was one of the people invited to that. I think it was Basil Rifkin. I can't remember who was the person that was running the section, but she said, and I'm not making this up though. I obviously am paraphrasing. She said, when we sat down in the room, they closed the door and they said, here it is. We've already written the consensus statement. Nobody leaves this room until we all agree to this statement. And she said they were basically held hostage in that room until they agreed to the consensus statement, which 36 hours later they basically did and they all left the room. I even remember her making a case about how they brought in really crappy Chinese food to sort of feed them a little bit, give them enough food. But I mean that story I've never forgotten that story and it was very upsetting and it really is an extreme example of mistakes were made but not by me. I do believe that, you know, Basil Rifkind and Mark Hicks and all these guys had good intentions. But they were now so far gone from any sense of understanding what data meant that it was irrelevant. I mean, they had gone purely into the role of evangelists, and the story you just told sounds so unfortunately similar that that like I, it's like I'm in a bad movie. It doesn't even it's not doesn't sound possible.
1: The other thing, of course, is the negativity bias, which cognitive psychologists have studied, finds that people are more drawn to negative news than to positive news. And certainly negative news is what sells, what gets attention. I think if the Women's Health Initiative had stopped the presses to say, we could, we are happy to report that HRT is beneficial for women and prolongs their lives and makes them feel better, this would not have been as newsworthy or as shocking. Uh, you know, and Jacques Rousseau told a reporter from the New York Times that they wanted to do it this way to break into the noisy news cycle and get attention for the study Mm, would be nice if you had good data behind your press release. But so there were, there were a number of motives. If, if so much money had been spent on this, don't we have to have something really worthwhile to say to warrant that expenditure?
0: So let's talk a little bit about the statistics. So one of the tables I have uh, printed up in my office is from, I think it's the 2014 or 2015 JAMA paper that went back and looked at all the data because a lot of times women will say to me, doesn't HRT increase the risk of breast cancer by 25%? That's that's the common question I get asked. Doesn't HRT increase the risk of breast cancer by 25%? So where'd they get that number, right? They're getting that number from the news. So Let's talk about where that number came from.
2: Well, the first number is 26%, Mm. just to be a stickler.
0: Yes, exactly. But we we round. We round to the nearest five. Well,
2: because they came out two years later with 24%. That's correct. The initial 26% was among women who took hormone replacement therapy, meaning the combination of of estrogen and progesterone. If you look at estrogen let alone- me, Let
0: me interject for a moment because I should have done this earlier. Let's explain what the study looked like in terms of randomization. You had two cohorts of women, correct? You had women who had already undergone a hysterectomy and they were randomized to- Estrogen or placebo. Correct. So CEE, so conjugated equine estrogen or placebo. And women whose uterus was still in place were randomized to CEE plus MPA- versus a placebo, correct? Correct. Was the randomization one-to-one-to-one through all of that? Yes. Okay.
2: The women who were randomized to estrogen had no increased risk of breast cancer.
0: In fact, if you want to be a stickler and play the same game, my recollection is those women had a hazard ratio of 0.79, and the confidence interval ended up at 1.01. To translate that into English... The women who were on estrogen only had a twenty-one percent risk reduction, but the ninety-five percent confidence interval crossed unity, which meant it was not statistically significant. The p value was 0.07, if my memory serves me correctly, which meant there was a seven percent chance that that effect was random, meaning it didn't hit the five percent threshold. Right, but Did I remember that mostly. Pretty pretty
2: close. the The fact is, there was no real increase among the women who got estrogen alone that we would hang our hat on. There was one paper that came out that actually showed a 30% significant decrease, but that didn't hold up in in subsequent papers. So let's say there's no increased risk with estrogen alone. With estrogen and progesterone, there was a reported 26% increase. And it's important that we understand what that is. First, that was not statistically significant so that by scientific standards we think that could have been caused by chance alone what was the p value i don't remember the p value but it
0: was you're saying it was it was not definitely statistically below it, was, it was, not, was above
2: 0.5 yes it wasn't statistically significant but in order for there to be a 26% increase you have to know what the actual risk in numbers were was for women who got the the estrogen plus progesterone. So let's hit well, pause well, let and just explain this point. absolute. Yeah, you're going to well, explain absolute versus
0: well, yes, relative. Yeah,
2: You're comparing the incidence among women who took the two hormones compared to women who were randomized to a placebo. And there was this 26% reported increase. Now, you could have a 26% reported increase if you have a real increase in risk, or if your control, the women who were randomized to placebo had a lower than expected risk of breast cancer. And in fact, when you look at those numbers, you find that when you compare the women who were randomized to the two hormones, compared with the women who were randomized to placebo on the estrogen-only arm, there was no increased risk even among the women who were randomized to the two hormones. It was because there was a lower than expected risk among the control group who were randomized to the two hormones that you had what looked like an increased risk, not a statistically significant one, but an increased risk.
0: What's the best explanation for that? Is there one?
2: Yes. The women who had taken hormones before being randomized on the study, who were randomized to placebo, had a lower expected risk of breast cancer than women who had never taken hormones. If you take the women who had taken hormones before going on the study and remove them from the control group, you find no increased risk when you compare the women who got the hormones with the residual women in the control group. So the women who were taking hormones before the study had a lower than expected risk of eventual breast cancer. They lowered the control group number, and they gave you this artificial increased risk that you saw among the women who took the two hormones. Is that clear? Because it's always hard
1: to make that clear. That's an example of the kind of data manipulation that went on to try to create the impression of a real finding that that really was not there. But Peter, to your question about absolute and relative risks, that's what's crucial here. If I say that eating a grapefruit doubles my risk of bunions... I need to know what numbers we're talking about. If the numbers jump from one person to two person out of a hundred or out of a thousand... That's not a very, you know, I can say it's doubling the risk, but it's trivial. But if the numbers double from five hundred to a thousand in a group of ten thousand, then we might have a finding we should be paying attention to. Most studies, epidemiologists, of course, report relative risks, where we don't even know. In some cases, we don't even know what the absolute numbers are. Abram and I were at pains in our book to see when we we would read studies that reported an increased risk of. X, Y, or Z, or a reduced risk of something, to see what the absolute numbers were. Are we talking about outliers? Are we talking about a finding that's really statistically strong as well as significant? And in many cases, we couldn't even find what the absolute numbers were. But where we could, we really paid
0: attention. By my calculation, which you can do straight out of the data reported in the Women's Health Initiative, the absolute increase in risk, if you believe the 26% relative increase, it ter- it calculated at about 0.9 cases per thousand or nine cases per 10,000. So exactly. it was less than 1% absolute risk increase, even if it turned out to be true, which by the way, to simplify matters, when I'm talking to women about the risks of hormone replacement therapy, I say, as a general rule, consider the Women's Health Initiative, your ceiling on risk. This is probably as bad as it would get. And if you would accept that there's an increase of 1% in your risk of breast cancer, and here are all the caveats on why I'm, I, don't, I find that hard to believe, but at least you have a case study here for how bad it could be when, when you stack the deck against you statistically. And
1: against that is what are the benefits to you? Well, that's the point. Of of, of absolutely. Let's, we yeah. have to wait. But even talking about those risks, which
2: we don't accept as real, and there are other studies like the Nurses' Health Study that, as I mentioned earlier, showed that there is no increased risk of, of breast cancer with hormones taken for 5, 10, or 15 years, even. Assuming those risks, we know that women who are diagnosed with breast cancer while on hormones have a better prognosis, stage for stage, than women who are diagnosed not taking hormones. And even the Women's Health Initiative, in one of the subsequent papers, said that the women who had been randomized to hormones and have gotten breast cancer had a lower risk of dying from breast cancer than the control group that didn't get hormones.
1: This is huge. This is such an important thing for physicians and for women to understand. And it seems so counterintuitive. Women who've had breast cancer, who are on HRT, have a better prognosis. This is astonishing.
0: And what's interesting about it is you can dismiss the nurse's health study on that because of the healthy user bias that goes into it. It is easy to say, and I think it's a legitimate criticism, That the women in the nurse's health study who had better outcomes, of course they had better outcomes. They were more health conscious. They were nurses. They were selected, you know, through that process to be that way. So the the proponent of the women's health initiative will say it's a better study because it was randomized, notwithstanding the, the limitations of that. But it's interesting that in this subset analysis, which is always fraught with its own statistical issues, the finding of the nurse's health study with respect to this point you make still held up. That is to say, I'll repeat it because it is so important, a woman who is on HRT at the time of breast cancer diagnosis has a lower rate of mortality, not just all cause, but breast cancer, if I'm correct.
2: Yes. And if we amplify that just a little, hormones have been used, estrogen specifically, has been used to treat breast cancer. And there have been significant Favorable responses. I can't imagine treating lung cancer by increasing the number of cigarettes you smoke every day. And yet, as early as 1944, there were researchers publishing a 25% response rate among patients with measurable breast cancer who were treated with estrogen. If a woman gets pregnant after breast cancer, flooding her body with estrogen, Uh, and we used to advise women never to do that, and women disregarded our advice. The pregnancy does not increase the risk of breast cancer coming back. If anything, it decreases the risk of cancer coming back.
1: This is what I find so important and so fascinating, which is the heart of this discussion is to try to puncture the widespread premise that estrogen causes breast cancer. And that's, of course, the great fear, And it's but it's just an embedded assumption. And here, as Avram has just described, research from from treating women with breast cancer or women who are pregnant or women who began menstruating very early, the many directions we might look at, women on birth control pills, do any of those things that increase the amount of estrogen in your body, is that, is that related in some way to breast cancer? And it is not.
0: That's the key. So another interesting aspect of looking at the women's health initiative, which it's very hard to look at the data and not ask the question, what is the role of MPA? Because when you look at the women who had a uterus, these are women who got estrogen and progesterone, synthetic progesterone, progestin versus placebo, there was a trend towards a higher breast cancer. But when you look at the opposite, the women who had no uterus and therefore only needed estrogen, the trend was in the exact opposite direction to the exact same magnitude. I mean, it almost looks like you couldn't make it up. There are, they are mirror images of each other. So you have to ask the question, what are the differences? And there are two. One of them had a uterus, one did not. And one took synthetic progestin and one did not. So the question is, does not having a uterus... And or does taking synthetic progesterone make a difference?
2: First on the synthetic progesterone, it's MPA medroxyprogesterone acetate, which was used in the women's health initiative because that was the most widely prescribed progesterone available in the United States. First, let me go back to saying that the increased risk seen with the combination was not statistically significant, did not hold up, and was due largely to a problem with the control group. If you accept that, anything we say at this point is
0: speculation.
2: And and irrelevant really, but I'll take your question. So what has resulted from that is people are saying, well, the problem really isn't estrogen. We'll give estrogen a pass. The problem is progesterone and, in fact, this particular synthetic progesterone. Well, I'm not sure there's a problem because the numbers don't really bear that out. But if there is a problem, there are now forms of progesterone, which are not synthetic, uh, that are now being advised and used, and thus far have not been associated even with any finding of an increased risk of breast cancer. But in addition, progesterone also has been used to treat breast cancer, and progesterone works as well as tamoxifen does to treat breast cancer. In a randomized trial comparing tamoxifen to progesterone in the early 70s, when tamoxifen was first produced and marketed, Progesterone did a little better than tamoxifen, but because in the doses used it was associated with increased fluid retention and women became nauseated, it lost out to tamoxifen. But it was used to treat breast cancer. There was a study that came out of India by a an investigator trained in England who found that if he gave an injection of progesterone around the time of surgery to remove primary breast cancer, he significantly improved the prognosis, decreased the risk of recurrence. So making a lot of noise around progesterone doesn't really fit the available data that we have.
0: So two things. One, I actually had a discussion with Joanne Manson about this a few years ago, which was why did you use that crappy estrogen and progestin? Why didn't you use what we would use today, which is bioidentical estrogen, bioidentical progesterone? And uh, I've always had a lot of respect for Joanne, by the way. I don't know if you guys were able to, did you interview her for the book? I don't, yeah, I didn't think so. And she, she gave me an answer that I thought was very logical and you've alluded to it already. She said, you're probably right, Peter. I mean, I I think the bioidentical hormones are likely better, but we had to do it with what was available. In the we had to test what was being used by the average physician at the time. And certainly people at the time were making some noise that shouldn't we at least use bioidentical human hormones, which intuitively makes more sense. But she said a study testing that wouldn't have made sense in the nineties because that wasn't what the average woman was being tested. So that said, most women today are using bioidentical progesterone, aren't they? When they're when they're uh, receiving um, hormone replacement therapy, no, they're what still using the synthetic I- progesterone.
2: Well, first Premarin. Yes, let's talk about the estrogen. The word bioidentical is a buzzword. As you know, bioidentical really refers to estradiol, which is the leading circulating estrogen in a woman's body. And there are pharmaceutically prescribed estrogens. That are made by significant manufacturers that we have no problem with. And I want to get back to that in a minute. But bioidentical is also used for what is prepared by pharmacists based on prescriptions written by local practitioners where quality control is lacking. There is no clear dose equivalency. And every responsible investigator I know wants to make the point that buying something because it's got the word bioidentical, which sounds comforting, is a mistake. Second, Premarin, which is pregnant mare urine, and I say that rubbing your face in it because it sounds so terrible, is the longest studied form of estrogen, And we now have 60 years of data with Premarin. And most of the studies that show the benefit for estrogen are studies that were done on Premarin for the same reason that Joanne Manson gave you. It's the one that was used most often. In addition... Premarin contains at least 10 different forms of estrogen, including some that are the most beneficial forms of estrogen for brain health, which is not present in estradiol or estriol. So that my preference, based on data only, is Premarin because we have the most data supporting it. Now, as far as progesterone is concerned, yes, micronized Bioidentical progesterone appears to be the safest form of progesterone administration.
0: What do you think explains this is a bit of a pivot, but what do you think explains the mechanism of action? So so I'll take a step back and preface this with the following. You alluded to this earlier. Most people intuitively think testosterone must be driving prostate cancer. But the problem is Men tend to get prostate cancer when their testosterone levels are at their lowest, not their highest. And men with high testosterone when they're young don't seem to get prostate cancer. So it's just a bit confusing. And in fact, there's more recent data to suggest that the lower the testosterone, the more likely the probability of a high grade prostate cancer. So everything seems to be moving in the wrong direction as testosterone goes down.
1: May I just interrupt that it's the same with estrogen. As women get older and have lower estrogen levels, the rates
0: of breast cancer increase. So therein lies my point. What do you think explains the mechanism by which estrogen withdrawal and or removal, and the same for progesterone, is increasing this risk? And why, Avram, can you point out these examples of administration of these things that seem to potentially improve the condition? What do you think is happening at the molecular level? Acknowledging what you said at the outset, which is we don't have a goddamn clue what cancer is.
2: We have clues, but I said, I don't understand what cancer (laughs) is. And the reason I said that right at the beginning is to try to forestall just this kind of question. The best answer I can give is we think we understand the environment that is friendly to a cancer, which is the environment in which the cancer develops. And we try to change that environment to make it less conducive to the continued growth of the cancer. That means in a low estrogen environment, you might use estrogen because that is now unfriendly to the cancer. In a high estrogen environment, you might remove estrogen. Same with testosterone. But exactly how that works I would use a lot of fancy words and they would try to cover my ignorance.
0: Mm -hmm. Appreciate the honesty. Most of us tend to use those fancy words and hide our ignorance behind them. So in 2002, the JAMA study comes out and there were a bunch of follow-ups. So there was a 2003, a 2004 follow-up. What did each of these follow-ups attempt to do?
2: The 2002 follow-up said that the combination of estrogen and progesterone increases the risk of breast cancer. Not true. We've discussed that. Increases the risk of heart attacks, increases the risk of cognitive decline, decreases the risk of colon cancer, and helps protect the bones. That's really what it said. And then there were all these arguments about the statistical significance of the breast cancer finding. And so in 2003, They came out with a second article showing borderline statistical significance for the increased risk of breast cancer.
0: And this is the point you alluded to earlier. And this is actually the paper that I am looking at more often because this is the one that went from 1.26 as the hazard ratio to one24 and this is the one where the p-value actually went to 0.5 from, I believe, point 07, 0.05 level to 0.07. the showed that it was That's right.
2: borderline statistically significant. But in 2006, a follow-up article said that that reported increased risk in that population had disappeared with continued follow-up. And that article never made the headlines, and most people aren't even aware of it.
0: And in fact, people like Joanne, and I think this is why I respect Joanne a lot. She is one of those investigators from the WHI who I believe is trying to course correct it. I remember driving to work one day and hearing her on NPR. And this was probably like maybe five years ago. And she was being interviewed. And I don't know if I'll be able to find, you know, if we can find the link to this, that would be great. I I doubt we will. But she basically made the point. She said, look, I think I think the recommendations went too far. And, you know, I, I could at least respect that she was now walking it back. Now, she may come to a different conclusion than the one you've come to. But she was at least willing to say, look, I think there really are a subset of women, especially those entering menopause who have symptoms, who deserve to be treated. And we made a mistake. That that was really my interpretation she, of what she said. They willing,
1: were willing to say that it was okay for women to take hormones this is the mantra that women hear all the time. The smallest dose for the least amount of time. The smallest dose for the least amount of time. And as Avram keeps pointing out, there is absolutely no empirical evidence to support that advice. It's a bit like saying, smoke the fewest cigarettes for the shortest amount of time and you'll be, you know, you'll get the benefit of smoking, but without the lung cancer. It's not so, but I think it does represent a compromise in terms of the women Health, Women's Health Initiative's realization that HRT really was beneficial for quality of life issues for women in menopause. What they were not prepared to do was to consider HRT's benefits over the long haul for women in later years in reducing the risk of osteoporosis, dementia, and heart disease. That they are not willing even yet to suggest that HRT has any prolonged benefits over time. You don't have to go back to NPR. I, I believe it was
2: 2017 when Joanne Manson published a paper saying just what you said. First, yes, we went too far. Second, we found that women who are earn hormones had a lower risk of breast cancer, lower death from breast cancer, and in fact, lower death from all causes compared to women who weren't taking hormones. But she didn't Endorse the use of hormones. She fell back on uh, the lowest dose for the shortest period of time, which would be okay if hormones weren't so beneficial. A study that came out uh, by Nananda Cole from Boston, which we quote in the book, showed that if every woman in the United States took hormone replacement therapy—now, uh, admittedly, this is before the Women's Health Initiative was published it would increase the median survival of women by 3.3 years in this country.
1: There's no other intervention I can think of that has such a great consequence for longevity. And Phil Sorrell at Yale calculating how many women might have died prematurely from heart disease because they went off HRT was thousands and thousands of women per year.
2: The number he came up with was 50,000 women between 2002 and sometime in the early teens, might have died as a result of being taken off hormone therapy.
0: One of the diseases, and I'd like to do this a bit more systematically now because you guys have done in the book such a great job. Your book is organized. Basically, once you go through the case you've made, you then basically have a chapter for each outcome. So let's start with one of them. Let's start with the brain. Near and dear to my heart as well. Um, As you think about longevity, you have to think about delaying the onset of dementia. And again, what most people don't realize, in fact, it's one of those six things where I remember the first time I learned it, I thought, how did I not know this already? The great divide in chronic disease is Alzheimer's disease. It's the one that disproportionately targets women. So women are two times more likely to die of Alzheimer's disease than men. And let's put that in context for a moment. Can you imagine if, I don't know, women were two times more likely to die of heart disease or of pick a given cancer, pancreatic cancer, you know, something that's not sort of gender specific, you'd be like scratching your head thinking, how is this possible? And so what's the explanation for that? I'm not going to offer one, but I will offer a hypothesis. The most obvious difference between men and women is not the rate of longevity in women, which would be the knee-jerk response to why that's occurring. Women living a year and a half, two years longer must explain it, but those data don't bear out. So another hypothesis might be women have an abrupt loss of hormones. Men have a gradual loss of hormones. So say a little bit more about what your beliefs are now with respect to the data and what they tell us about the risk of Alzheimer's disease.
2: For every woman diagnosed over 60 with breast cancer, two women are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The cure rate for early diagnosed breast cancer is now approximately 90%. The cure rate for Alzheimer's disease is zero. We have treatments for breast cancer that we haven't gone into, but it's not really the subject of this podcast. And there is no treatment for Alzheimer's. If there is one disease that women fear more than breast cancer, it's Alzheimer's. And exercise and diet... And uh, mental gymnastics and even a product of jellyfish has nothing to do with preventing Alzheimer's disease. The one potential preventive medication is estrogen and that can reduce the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. Between 20 and 50 percent, depending upon the study you look at.
1: In that chapter, where we review those studies uh, animal studies, lab studies, real life field studies, uh, randomized controlled studies the findings converge from all of those directions of research to show the benefits of estrogen on the brain. Barbara Sherwin at McGill, who has studied this question for many years, she's someone from my side of the professional fence of a psychologist, and she was asked about taking estrogen for many years and so forth. And she said, you know, I get so cross when people say taking HRT is not natural. She said, what's not natural is for a woman to live to be 85 or 90 years old. And if estrogen is something that can help women to live with healthy mental functioning in those later years, then I am all for it.
0: Yeah, that's a great point you raise, which it goes so much beyond all of this. But that, that really envelopes this discussion. What What does natural mean? Exactly. If natural means what evolution intended we're all irrelevant by the time we're my age. I mean, let alone your age, right? I mean, so if we've decided to live in a society where we value living beyond our reproductive years, then why aren't we entertaining things that are quote unquote unnatural?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: It, it really is an asinine uh, argument to me, uh, but uh, obviously I'm biased.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so are we <laughs> in that respect. Absolutely.
0: So let's now talk a little bit about heart disease because if the Increase in breast cancer was the screaming headline in 2002. The second headline had to be heart disease and stroke.
2: As Carol pointed out, with a median age of 63, with 70% of the population overweight, a significant number of whom were obese. with I, I half- believe
0: about 30%, 34% were obese, if yes, I recall. Yes, that's right.
2: With half of them, or 40% smokers, and with a significant number having high blood pressure that was treated, this doesn't represent a cardiovascular healthy population. We know that estrogen is capable of causing platelet clumping. Platelets, as you know, are small corks that circulate in the blood that help prevent bleeding by going to a site of bleeding and plugging it up. Estrogen can cause these platelets to clump, and if you already have blood vessels that are narrowed by pre-existing heart disease, a platelet clump can further narrow the blood vessel and cause a cardiac event. And as a result of that, it is recommended that women with pre-existing cardiovascular disease not start on hormone therapy— And the ideal time to start is around menopause, sometime within the first 10 years of cessation of your periods. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that older women must never take it. In fact, that increased risk of cardiovascular events is seen generally during the first
1: year that a woman starts hormones. Point of clarification, that increased risk, but that's... After the window of opportunity, 10 years after yes, menopause begins. That's correct. It, thank th- you. There is no increased risk if a woman begins HRT at the time of menopause. With no pre existing cardiovascular okay.
0: disease. This is actually what I wanted to ask you about. So thank you for clarifying this. Let's make sure that the listeners are crystal clear on this. If you take a woman entering the normal perimenopausal to menopausal state and she has no pre existing cardiovascular disease, and I want to come back to how we'll define that, but let's wait on a moment. The data make it pretty clear. There's no increase in her risk of cardiovascular disease ongoing. Correct. Not just for five years. Correct. Okay. Case two, you take a woman who is, let's just make the math easy. She's 60 years old and she went into menopause at 50. So she has a window now that is 10 years. There is zero evidence that she has existing cardiovascular disease. She begins hormone replacement therapy how clear are the data that she is also not increasing her risk of cardiovascular disease?
2: Well, it depends on the studies you've done to show that she has no narrowed blood vessels. Let's,
0: let's go gold standard to the best of our ability. Calcium score is zero. CT angiogram shows nothing. Lipids are beautiful.
2: Then she's probably okay. But let us say we are not here Trying to increase sales of hormones. No, no, I understand. What we want to do, and just to make it clear, is empower women so they not be given some curt answer when they ask about it. This is a legitimate course of action to follow, but with and after a discussion with your physician.
0: Yeah, what I'm mostly trying to do is identify the women who might be at risk and who need to think twice about it, which sounds like it's women who are who have been completely deprived of hormones, meaning they went through menopause, they have been off hormones, they are now, call it 10 years out, and they have some pre-existing clinical or subclinical atherosclerosis, is their risk only one year after starting therapy and then it returns to baseline?
2: Uh, their risk is highest during that first year, and then it diminishes and diminishes and diminishes. There haven't been the kind of studies that I can tell you it returns to baseline, and I, I can't say that with assurance. But the major risk is during the first year, and if during the first year it doesn't occur, the likelihood is they will be well and won't have one of these events.
0: This is interesting because there was a similar stu- there was a study. Com- I shouldn't say similar. There was a parallel study to this idea published, I I want to say it was in JAMA, but it might have been the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago that looked at men with older men who were not particularly healthy put on testosterone replacement therapy. And one year after the study, the men on the testosterone group had a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease. Three years after the study initiated, the risk was equal and at five years, the men receiving testosterone had a lower risk of heart disease than the men on the placebo. It, it's actually quite interesting that it mirrors what you've just described. And I'd never made that connection until now.
1: It is quite interesting. And it's the question we get most often from women who entered menopause and we're scared off hormones because of their doctors. And now 10 years later, or even more than that, they th- this is one of the most common questions that uh, Avram gets. Can I go back on it now? I've been off this for, for 10 years. Is it safe to go back on? Because I'm suffering, because I'm having so many symptoms, because I'm really in discomfort, and the quality of my life is terrible. I would like to go back on hormones. Is it safe? So we understand the importance of this question and how... An individual woman really needs to assess what her particular risks are.
0: And, and Carol, that case study that you you know hypothetically put forth, that kind of flies in the face of what most people think. Most people think a 60-year-old woman who took hormones eight years ago and has not been on them anymore can't possibly have symptoms, right? It must be something else.
1: No, they do indeed have symptoms. Avram said earlier the average length of time a woman has symptoms during menopause is seven years. That's the average. For some women, it's 10 or 12 or 15. Abram gets letters from former patients saying, you know, I'm in my 70s here or my 80s, and I'm having this terrible trouble sleeping, and my doctor won't renew my prescription. Won't renew my prescription. I'm 78 years old. (laughs) You know, I'm doing fine on hormones, please. And the minute they go off, their symptoms often return.
0: So let's talk about an area that doesn't seem to have that much controversy, but just for the sake of completeness, let's let's talk about bone mineral density and osteoporosis for a second.
2: First, let's talk about bone mineral density. Bone mineral density is used as a substitute marker for osteoporosis. It is a bad substitute marker. It's the best one we have, but it's not a good test. And one of the ways to explain that is... Bone elasticity is what allows bones to bend without breaking and allows us to be active without suffering acute fractures. Bone elasticity is due to the girders within the bone that are made of collagen and that are broad and healthy and bend. The bone mineral density measures the envelope in which those girders are contained. The envelope is the cortex of the bone, and the cortex of the bone is made largely of calcium. To show you what a bad measure bone mineral density is, and I'm sure you know this, Peter, if you give patients fluoride, you will dramatically increase bone mineral density, and the bone will become thick and break easily and have no elasticity. And that's not a good treatment for osteoporosis. The best way to check for osteoporosis is to take a bone in the body and put it in a vise and see how much pressure you can exert before the bone snaps The problem is that- Well, you
0: know, it's funny. I do that test on most of my patients, but (laughs) you would be amazed. There are a subset of patients that refuse that. Yeah, Yeah, they refuse that test.
2: Exactly. And we don't have that test yet, although somehow we're able to do it on bridges to predict when bridges will fail. And I'm not sure why we can't do it on bone yet, but bone mineral density is used as a substitute. And- we now know that as many women in the United States will die each year of a hip fracture as the number who will die of breast cancer.
0: Wait a minute. That, that sounds almost impossible to believe. I'm very sensitive to how often people die of hip fractures. So did you say that in a given year, there are as many women who will die from a hip fracture who are obviously going to be much older, that's a concentrated older subset, as all women who will die of in the breast United cancer States
2: who will die of breast cancer, the "I don't know that the hip fracture is directly responsible for their death, but approximately 21 percent of women who fracture their hip will die within a year of the hip fracture. and that number is approximately 40,000, which is the number of women who die in this country of breast cancer every year.
0: Do you know how many men die of hip fractures or sustain hip fractures that, within a year, precede their death?
2: I haven't looked. So, at I mean, that we'll number. look it up. I, but- I think it's close, but I don't know. And
0: and it is okay.
2: And estrogen will decrease the risk of osteoporotic hip fracture by up to fifty percent, better than any treatment available over the long term. And you can well say, well, now we have calcium and vitamin D, for example, and that is- And bisphosphonates. Well, calcium and vitamin D first. Then you can turn on television and see women talking about that. And since we just mentioned that the problem is not the shell of the bone, which is fed by calcium and vitamin D- Which aids calcium absorption. It is the internal girder network of the bone. In a postmenopausal woman who is not on estrogen, calcium and vitamin D have no protective effect against hip fracture. So let's talk about bisphosphonates, which do help prevent hip fracture almost as well as estrogen does. The problem is if you take them for longer than five years, you have an increased risk of fractures within the femoral shaft. They're called atypical femoral fractures. And that increased risk has been used to say that bisphosphonates should not be used for longer than five years. Whereas, You can take estrogen as long as you take it, your bone elasticity and your bone health is preserved and there's nothing as good as estrogen.
0: Anything you want to add to that, Carol?
2: I think he said it just
1: perfectly.
0: All right, Carol, tell me about colon cancer. What does HRT do to increase or decrease a woman's risk of colon cancer, which is a cancer that, you know, a lot of people don't realize how high that is on the mortality table because its lethality is, of course, nowhere near as bad as sort of pancreatic and lung, but it's it's more lethal than, again, it depends on how you define it, but it's going to be more lethal than breast cancer. So this is a big problem.
1: This was almost an unintended or unexpected a discovery about the benefits of estrogen in reducing the rates of death from colon cancer. I think it was kind of off the mental chart of, is this something we want to even think about as it as being a benefit of estrogen? But a number of significant studies have shown that it does indeed reduce the, reduce the risk of colon cancer.
0: And this was one of the few things that didn't, If I, my recollection is this was one of two or three findings in the Women's Health Initiative that was not really changed over time and not particularly controversial. Is that is that correct?
2: Yes. There are other studies, including the Nurses' Health Study, that showed that. There are many studies that showed uh, 20 25% decreased risk of colon cancer among women taking estrogen,
1: but we don't know why. I will say here at the beginning with the Women's Health Initiative, the first thing they wanted to say in that those first years was something they called their Global Health Index. Is that what they called it, Avram? This was supposed to be a sort of an overall measure of uh, health and longevity, claiming that uh, estrogen reduced longevity and increased women's mortality from all causes over the years. I mean, it was quite a quite an exaggerated claim. And over the years, they have been walking back from that one. Well, okay, it doesn't really increase the risk of dying from all other diseases that there might ever be. I mean, they were really looking to scare people for some reason at that point. Then they stopped talking about this global mortality rate uh, statistics, especially because they began looking at individual risks of death from various diseases and finding that there was no increased
2: risk diabetes is another one that estrogen seems to decrease
0: in the women's health initiative diabetes was self reported i've never can you explain why the hell that was the case no <laughs> there are so many gaping holes in my understanding of how the women's health initiative came to be Ours too. and that's yet another example of rather than actually make diabetes a secondary or tertiary outcome we'll make it a self reported outcome I, I don't even i've never seen a study where that's been the case Have you?
2: Single most expensive study ever done in this country, and that's the third time one of the people around this table has said, I've never seen that (laughs) (laughs) in the medical (laughs) literature before.
0: So tell me why you believe that HRT might actually reduce the probability of diabetes rather than increase it.
2: Because the numbers suggested it. That's all. I would like to see many more studies before we reach that conclusion and- you'll note we didn't mention diabetes in the book.
0: No, yeah, this is something I just brought up from actually mining, looking through the data myself, because it was so counterintuitive. Let's talk about the real downsides. It's hard to dispute that there was a real increase in pulmonary embolism and venous thromboembolism. You alluded to it already because you talked about platelet activation. Let's put it in context. Can we talk about the magnitude? So we saw the increase was clear and relative. How big was the absolute increase?
2: It's very small, and a a clot, a thrombophlebitis, a swollen leg because of a clotted vein, is usually not very serious unless, as you mentioned, a piece of the clot breaks off, goes to the lung. That's a pulmonary embolus, and that can be fatal. The incidence is small. I, I don't have the number in my hand. It's It's significant enough that if the patient is has a condition or is taking something that can predispose to that kind of clot. It must be a consideration before somebody starts on hormones.
0: The other thing that stood out to me was the increase in the incidence of gallbladder disease, though it was never really clear to me what the hell they were talking about. Did they mean Like, Did they mean stones in the gallbladder? They mean stones. And
2: that seems to be a statistically valid finding. And- cholecystectomy removing a gallbladder among women who are on hormones is a not infrequently reported finding and has to be thought of.
0: So when you take a step back and think about all of this, I think we're just as a society very conditioned to want binary answers. Something is good, something is bad, something is all good, something is all bad. For the unfortunate reasons you've described HRT following the Women's Health Initiative fit into the all bad category. I don't think you're here saying it's all good, but it sounds like it's more good than bad. And obviously that's my belief as well. How should a woman who's listening to this, who is either not in menopause yet, in menopause, past menopause, how would you counsel her to think about this as she approaches her physician who? may already have a very strong point of view about this.
2: I recently got back from London where I gave a talk at the Royal Society on the book in a discussion on the pros and cons of hormones. And when you walk into the Royal Society in London, emblazoned across the front in Latin, it says, take no one's word for it.
0: And there was an interesting guy who was the first president of that. I'm blanking on his name, Isaac... What was it? Something. Newton. Newton, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're in heady company there. It's
2: exactly right. And the reason we wrote the book with references on every chapter, trying to give people the data on which our conclusions are based, was, as I mentioned, to empower women so that the book is meant to make you a better consumer of healthcare so that when you go to your physician, you and your physician together can work out the best program for you to follow. And our conclusion from the book is that the benefits of hormones far outweigh the downsides, and hormones have been unfairly excluded from
1: medical regimens that women should at least be offered for consideration. I would add to this because I come from a history, of course, of feminist criticism of medicine and psychology and the bias in the nature of research and so forth in gender research. And so I am well aware of and for a long time supported many of the feminist criticisms of HRT and of, in general, the medicalizing. Of normal problems of life. The less is more movement in uh, medicine is designed to educate the public that sometimes you don't need to medicate every possible problem you could ever have in your life and that we're taking too many medications and too many drugs and so forth and so forth. And with much of this, I completely agree. But the alternative to over medicalizing our problems is not to under medicalize them either. And I think that many women influenced properly by feminist critiques of medicine have become, you know, think that there's something unfeminist about taking HRT, you know, something anti-woman about taking HRT. I'm not enough of a woman if I need to take hormones or that kind of argument. And I think it's as much a feminist argument to say, what is best for women overall, what is best for a particular woman, who is dealing with symptoms that are painful and difficult and complex. You know, I'm I'm going to be speaking at a a meeting of where it was interesting. The the board told me, well, we can't possibly invite you to come and talk about your book because everybody on this board is anti-HRT and they're feminists and they've been anti-HRT all of their lives and so forth. And then she called me the next day and said, well, the board has decided unanimously to ask you to come talk about this book on account of... They're now all in menopause and suddenly saying, you know what, my body is talking to me and I need to listen. So I think that the issue of HRT for women is not there's a correct ideological stance to be taken, but rather one that needs to look at what is best for most women and for any given woman making this decision. And let me just add, at the beginning of our
2: discussion, you spoke about a patient of yours who was suffering through menopause who went on estriol and progesterone and a little bit of testosterone.
0: No progesterone. She had had a hysterectomy. Right. I'm yeah. sorry. But right. The, the right. estriol was to right. the safest way perceived to give okay. her estrogen. And yeah, I, as a-
2: I just have to say that we don't have large-scale studies on estriol so that one has to take every step very carefully. And the simplistic answer that testosterone has to be good because it can stimulate libido. And since it's a male hormone, it must be anti-breast cancer. Testosterone has also been associated with the development of breast cancer. It can show some stimulation of growth of breast cancer in culture. And that too has to be looked at very carefully.
0: These are all such important questions. In fact, when you think about what we've just talked about, we have talked about cancer. We have talked about atherosclerosis or all of the cardiovascular and cerebrovascular diseases and Alzheimer's disease. So you've basically, and then when you add fractures to that, you have basically, if I'm doing the math right, accounted for about 80 to 85% of deaths that women will experience and you're talking about something that could move the needle by, let's be conservative and call it 10 to 20%, potentially more, but let's say conservatively 10%, will there ever be a correctly done women's health initiative that will include these other questions? We've never asked the question about other forms of estrogen. We've never asked the question about testosterone, which most women don't realize this, but Even during her reproductive years, she has 20 to 100 times more testosterone in her body than estrogen, even at ovulation. And she's losing that as well as losing her estrogen. But to your point, we don't have a clinical trial that asks that question. Will we?
2: No. And the reason we won't is the idea that every truth can only be determined by a prospective double-blind randomized study is simply not holding up. In fact, there are now many articles appearing in the general medical literature talking about well-followed, carefully put-together observational studies that can give us information that we simply can't get from double-blind randomized trials. I think when we begin to understand better what cancer is, We will have better answers. The data that we try to string together are data based on studies which follow our ignorance and our attempt to see through this darkness to work out the best treatment for any individual
0: patient. Do you think there's something else at play which is, notwithstanding the complexity and the cost of repeating a study of that magnitude,
1: Notwithstanding? Notwithstanding the complexity and cost? No, that's what's standing. That's what's standing (laughs) in the way, of course. Well,
0: I guess that's my point. Is it is the issue that the NIH, which is really the only entity that could ever fund a study of this magnitude, right? There is no industry version of this study. Has has this been I mean, did you interview folks? I'm trying to remember who you interviewed from NIH. Do you get the sense that this is case closed in the same way that unfortunately Many still view the dietary studies of the 70s and 80s as a bit of a case closed.
2: Let let me just add that people ask us why we are a voice in the wilderness, voices in the wilderness. Well, we're not. And if you look at the people who have endorsed our book, they include Vince DeVita, who is the director of the National Cancer Institute, part of the NIH.
0: Yeah, Vince actually, along with uh, Steve Rosenberg, my mentor, and I forget the name of the, there was a radiation oncologist. Sam they, Hellman. Sam Hellman. Right. They write the Bible on oncology. They
2: write a very important book called Cancer. That's correct. Jerry kasira who is the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, endorsed our book. Leslie Turnberg, who is the president of the Royal Society of Medicine in England, endorsed the book. These are very well-informed people, as many female groups endorsed the book as well. Phyllis Greenberger, who's the CEO of the Women's Science Cooperative, endorsed the book. These are people who are aware of the data, are aware of the limitations of the data available to us, and they strongly recommend that this book be read, not just by women, but I have men who come up to me who thank me for saving their lives because of
1: their wives getting better, and that was killing them. Yeah. But you see, your question, I think, Peter, too, is what kind of research needs to be done to help us answer the questions that we have remaining? What kind of research? So there won't be anything as big as the Women's Health Initiative, as costly as that, as the statistical police have to leave the room because we're never going to be able to do anything this big and this elaborate again. I think that's true. But what I think, what I'm seeing that I find really interesting, and Avram alluded to this already, is that we now can do studies comparing the outcome of randomized controlled trials with observational studies. And it turns out we've all thought, oh, the RCT is the gold standard. And if it isn't the RCT, then forget it. I don't want to even look at any observational study. I don't care what other field studies you've done. I don't want to see any other kind of data. If it's not an RCT, I'm done. And I know, you know, some scientists have that view. What really impressed us. In gathering the research we did was that when you look at different methods of investigation across many different samples, many different countries, many different times, when you start to get a convergence of evidence, where you don't just have one outlier here saying, oh, look, HRT is beneficial, but no, there's a convergence from so many different directions, then you can feel a little more secure that you're really on solid ground. And I'm finding too, as Avram just said, I want to underscore this, not every RCT is bias-free and reliable, as we've just been seeing, and not every observational study is to be thrown out because it's only an observational study.
0: Yeah, and there's another point here that so much of our thinking about epidemiology is based on nutritional epidemiology, which John Ioannidis has recently described as I mean, effectively garbage. I mean, I think he even went so far as to say that. And if you know John, he's quite measured in his words, but I mean, he's basically said there's no role for nutritional epidemiology. And so you might say, well, then there's no room for all epidemiology, but there is a difference I think, and it's subtle, but it's important. Part of the trouble with nutritional epidemiology is it relies on things like food frequency questionnaires Which anybody who's ever actually tried to fill one of these things out realizes they're almost impossible to gather data. Whereas epidemiology may, in fact, have less of the data crisis when the intervention is simpler. And certainly taking HRT is simpler than remembering what you ate over the past seven days. Point two is so this is, by the way, I have no overarching point. I'm just stating a bunch of thoughts as I try to wrestle with what you're saying. Point two is. I think we have seen that it is impossible to eliminate healthy user bias from epidemiology. There are no branches of statistics that can eliminate this, and we must always acknowledge that. And that is why we have to be careful when we look at epidemiologic studies of things where the intervention is more likely to appear in a healthier group or a more health-conscious group or more affluent group. The third point, which I want to highlight what you've said is, We are lulled into a false sense of confidence with randomized controlled trials. And yet virtually all of them have some measure of what's called performance bias, which, you know, predimed, which is generally regarded as the best nutritional study, despite the, you know, change in the statistics around the randomization suffered a very large performance bias, meaning the group that was treated was given much more attention than the group that was the placebo. And therefore, they were probably, or at least possibly, more likely to change behaviors in other ways that could have impacted the outcome. So your point is correct, which is just because something is a randomized controlled trial doesn't mean it is free of bias.
1: I want to add something, I think, really crucial here that's, in a way, a, th- a theme throughout our book, which is that the demands on researchers to publish or perish has meant a proliferation of bias badly analyzed studies. So this is where you're an epidemiologist. You've got a thousand, you've got thousands and thousands of people in your sample and you don't find what you thought you would find. You find no connection between cucumbers and bunions, right? And so instead of saying, gee, we find no connection between these two things, they then engage in these statistical practices that are no-nos for any statistician or scientist to do. And yet the results find homes in medical journals. I go back into my data. I rummage around until I find some tiny subset of the sample that seems to support my hypothesis. You don't get to do that. And yet in these studies over and over, as we show in our book, Not only do they get to do that, but they get published. That's the reason for that, the wonderful table with the list of risks of increased risks of breast cancer that include using an electric blanket for more than six months but less than two years and eating uh, grapefruit and so forth, those were preposterous findings that weren't replicated and yet all of them found homes in medical journals. And that's the concern.
0: Yeah, I have the table here. I I was actually reading it. uh, Well, actually, I was reading this in your 2009 paper, and it's great. You know, fish intake, 14% increase in the risk of breast cancer. French fries, twenty-seven well, percent. French
2: fries, one extra helping of French oh, that's fries. Right, that's right. That's
0: It was just one additional serving of French fries per uh, week. Per week in
2: the preschool population.
0: Yeah. No. No. Look. I mean, if you're eating fries at the age of four, I promise mm-hmm. you that. It's a, uh, grapefruit, thirty percent increase. But in only brisket. if you eat
1: half a grapefruit. Yeah.
0: That's I mean, right. That's, three three quarters of a grapefruit ameliorated the risk exactly. entirely. Exactly.
1: Being a Scandinavian flight attendant.
0: Finnish to be particular. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) We had to be very specific. But if you were Icelandic Mm -hmm. instead of Finnish, the risk went from 1.87 to 4.1. And if you use an electric blanket, It's interesting, the risk goes up to almost 5x.
1: But that's only if you are African American and only if you use it for a certain number of months per year and only under a certain number of years. You
0: have to use it for more than six, you have to use it for fewer than six months a year, but for more than 10 years. There you
1: go. (laughs) You can't make this up. I mean, that's somebody really looking to eke out something statistically significant to publish. One
2: other point to put in, when we started by saying we don't know what cancer is, let me tell you one of the things we do know. One of the hardest malignancies to treat when I started was called acute promyeloblastic leukemia. This is a condition where the bone marrow is full of very immature, angry cells called promyelocytes or promyeloblasts. And chemotherapy, even intensive chemotherapy, was associated with a 2 to 5% possible response rate with no complete remission, and everybody died. And about 15 years ago, several investigators found that the problem with promyeloblastic leukemia is not that these terrible-looking cells are multiplying too quickly, it's that these cells are facing a maturation arrest, that immature cells multiply very quickly. That's how we go from being two cells to being an organism in nine months. And then they start multiplying slowly as cells mature, they multiply less actively. If there's a maturation arrest, so the cell cannot mature beyond a particular point, the cells grow very quickly, and they kill the patient. If you give something, and in the case of acute promyeloblastic leukemia, it's a form of vitamin A called transretinoic acid. If you give that to the patient, you remove the maturation arrest, the abnormal leukemic cells proceed through normal maturation, the disease disappears, and the patient is better. And so looking at the tumor cell as the enemy, instead of as the smoke behind the fire of the maturation arrest was misguided. And I think we're going to find in many malignancies that our understanding of what cancer is, is going to change. And we're going to stop trying to identify the tumor cell as the enemy, but we're not there yet.
0: There are people that are really talking and this has been, this has been something, this has been a voice that people have been um, starting to, to, starting to gain some volume is, you know, look at the role of stromal cells, for example. So we, we have focused as you're pointing out almost exclusively on the actual cell that has undergone the genetic alteration to render it uh, cancerous. But the stromal cell that surrounds it, the the environment in which it lives in cellularly um, is is now, I think people are starting to realize there's something there. Absolutely. And now how we target that for treatment becomes a second question. But this is a great point. And I want, I want to thank you for writing this book because I don't know how much you guys thought about it before you did it, but you know, you're going to make some enemies writing a book like this because you're going up against effectively established medical entities that have a position and it becomes easy to discredit people who come across as zealots. And I'm not saying you're coming across as zealots, but anybody who writes a book that basically says some very obvious, you know, well laid out conclusion is incorrect you don't get to say that meekly, right? You have to say that with a megaphone to overcome the noise. And when you do that, it looks like, well, you're a zealot. And we
2: welcome the criticism and the discussion. And rather than make enemies, we welcome critics. And that way, we will all learn. We don't claim to have the final answer. But we think that this book represents an important step forward in empowering women and helping them live longer and live better
1: and avram you know when avram has debated those who have a publicly different point of view and has said okay here's my point of view here's the data here's what i find please tell me why you disagree and they don't they can't they haven't and well,
0: well what is the best what is the best counter argument you have heard to your point of view and even if it's not at a macro level but to specific issues
2: it is incredible how silent the other side is. Incredible. I've debated people in public. I debated a leading advocate of hormone replacement therapy who, in the course of a debate... A leading opponent. A leading opponent. In the course of the debate, said, look, if all you care about is looking good, feeling good, and living a long time, then take estrogen. (laughs) And I sat down.
0: (laughs) It's very rare in life that your opponent actually does the mic drop for you.
2: I put that on a slide and used it in future talks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's almost hard to believe. One thing we didn't touch on is race. So we've talked about pre-existing heart disease, and that may be a fork in the road. That may be a place where we need to reconsider or re-stratify. When we talk about race, we know that there are different racial predispositions to breast cancer. Has anything come out of all of the re-evaluations of the data that would suggest one way or another that Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, Asian women might actually benefit or be harmed differentially from hormones?
2: The first answer to the best of my knowledge is no, but the reason for that is the overwhelming majority of the studied patients are Caucasian. There was a report in 2003 that said that the incidence of breast cancer has dropped precipitously. And people in the Women's Health Initiative said, well, we published this study in 2002, and the incidence of hormone replacement therapy went down significantly. And while we can't claim credit, we can't think of a better explanation than that. Well, that's preposterous. It's preposterous first because cancer doesn't start and develop within six months. Some people think it takes as long as 20 years. And when they were greeted with that, the answer was, well, we agree. We didn't decrease the risk of cancer starting, but what we did is cancers that were subclinical, therefore not diagnosable, that would have been stimulated to grow by the hormones, never mind that the hormones don't stimulate the cancers to grow, they diminished, and that's the reason for the decline. Well, first, you don't know how many of the women who didn't get breast cancer were or were not taking hormones. But even if your point is right, then the decline should have been among the very early small cancers that just peaked through as a result of the stimulation that you are postulating. And the incidence of cancer diminished, not among that population, but among the more advanced larger cancers. And by the way, the decline started in 1999, not in 2002. And yet in the literature, they take credit for that
1: but has Declined. the decline occurred among all groups? Oh, and I'm sorry.
2: And the point I was making is the decline did not occur among Black women; that it was only seen among Caucasian women.
0: I do we have data on the different uses of HRT among women at that time?
2: Not that I know of. It also didn't occur. The decline wasn't seen in Norway, which is largely Caucasian.
1: Of course, most research has been conducted on white women and not on African-American women. Although, I mean, the, the ethnic question and the regional question is a very important one. And I think for that reason, the fact that national menopause societies in every country from India and African nations and South America and Canada and that long list of, of menopause, society, I mean, yeah. menopause societies all have endorsed uh, the use, the the beneficial use of HRT. For women.
2: And have argued against take the smallest dose for the shortest period of time.
0: Does that make the United States one of the more anti-HRT countries?
1: It does. Well, I would say so. See, it's, it's interesting. In, um, in England, where Premarin is on the national health... And his routine is kind of considered the old-fashioned, you know, HRT. And bioidenticals are somehow trendier and better. But there isn't the quite the antipathy toward HRT that we see here. Nonetheless, the Women's Health Initiative had international repercussions.
0: I mean, it certainly has in Canada, where I naively, stupidly tried to have this discussion with my mom's doctor. And I mean, she looked at me like I had 12 heads before basically saying, son, we're in Canada here. We don't do that.
1: There you are.
0: I mean, there was no discussion. This this was not, let me hear why you think your mom would benefit from being on hormones. It was full stop. We'd have an easier time if you were asking me to attach a third arm to your mom.
1: Oh, well, you know, we conclude the book with a letter from a Portuguese gynecologist Called My Dream. And this is the guy in Portugal saying a critique of the Women's Health Initiative. I had a dream that the Women's Health Initiative apologized for the harms that it had caused in leading so many women to go off hormones. So this would suggest that there's been European consequences. Our book was very favorably reviewed by the London Times in a two page spread.
2: And interestingly, the author of that article was Anna Maxted, whose name is on a book I see in your bookcase.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And how has been the receipt here? I I mean, you have pointed out some very notable folks, but by and large, it seems like the investigators, the PIs from the WHI have been quite silent. Has, Has there been any any reception to what you've basically said, which is let's debate this openly, let's lay the data out, find the criticisms, and let's get better.
1: They have no incentive to. They are the Goliath. Why does Goliath want to argue with David and Jane? (laughs) In the book
2: we write that if somebody came to you and tried to convince you that the earth was flat, you wouldn't respond to them, you would just ignore them. And... We're not arguing that the earth is flat, but that's the way this is often being treated.
0: Well, I, I mean, the analogy is not quite right. It's like if someone came to me and said the earth is flat and just asserted it, I would absolutely ignore them. But if they came to me and had evidence, including photographs of a flat earth from the moon and photographs of what was once around earth and said, here's the optical illusion. I mean, in in other words, you're not just showing up saying the earth is flat.
2: That's why it's so heavily referenced. Yes.
0: Anything else you guys want to talk about on this topic? I mean, I, I could keep talking about this, but I, I think in, in less time than I expected, I thought we were going to need to talk for a long time. But you guys, I guess it's a, it's a testament to how well thought out your arguments are. And I don't think that this podcast is a substitute for people reading the book. In fact, I want to make that point clearly that you should not take our word for it on this discussion. I think this is an important enough question. I also think the book is accessible enough, meaning it's an easy enough book to read. You don't have to have a medical degree to read the book. And I think everybody should make the effort to read this book and should actually follow up in the references and should say, well, wait a minute, is that really true? Because I had that response and I'm very familiar with this literature. And I still found myself at times going to the references and saying, wait, that is, how did that happen? Wait, oh, wow. I, you know, because what you did nicely is you laid out the time course of the literature of the studies. And I think that's an important exercise.
1: Thank you, Peter. Our goal was to make the book readable enough for lay readers, certainly, of course, for women personally concerned about this issue so that they will understand what the evidence shows without having to read every study at hand if they want to. I mean, so in some sections, we'll have a drumbeat of findings showing, look its benefit, look its benefit, look its benefit, look its benefit. Look its benefit. You could read those studies or not if you wanted with a discussion of what the alternatives to HRT might be for heart or brain or bones or feeling good in your middle years. We consider all of those alternatives, what their limitations are, why we think estrogen is better. Um, So our goal was to make it readable for general readers, but also to provide the sources and information for those who want to know in more detail what the science shows. It's worth mentioning that when I write a paper,
2: I write it for a medical audience, physicians, and it's a pretty dry, data-filled paper. And the first paper I wrote with Carol, which you have in your possession, Hormone Replacement Therapy, Real Concerns and False Alarms, we wrote it together. Carol took the data that I put, and she included her Carol Touch, which includes things like a criticism of the Women's Health Initiative, saying in the paper, what were they thinking? Well, I couldn't put that in a paper, but it read so well and so easily that I sent the paper to an oncologist friend of mine, who was the editor-in-chief of the journal Cancer, and just asking him for his comments. And he got back to me in about four hours and said, with your permission, I want to publish the paper. And he did. With Carol's personality embedded in the paper, and it's embedded in the book, making it witty and enjoyable to read as well as data-filled. Thank you, Avram. Well, it's a pleasure. We, we didn't discuss hormone replacement therapy after a diagnosis of breast cancer. We touched on it, but chapter six in the book does discuss that. And that's still an open question, but it's an open question. It's not an obvious conclusion. As I mentioned, getting pregnant after having a diagnosis of breast cancer does not compromise the prognosis. In fact, it might improve the prognosis that Uh, pregnancy, which floods the body with estrogen before age 20, is associated with a 70% decreased risk of eventual breast cancer. We used to tell women if they got pregnant and they had breast cancer, they must abort, and it turns out that's not true, and in fact, aborting can negatively affect prognosis. And we present all the findings in that issue so that it's something worth discussing there are 15 studies in the literature looking at hormone replacement therapy after breast cancer, and all but one of them show no increased risk of recurrence. And the one that shows an increased risk of recurrence was stopped prematurely, had a follow-up of two and a half years, and is a worthwhile study to look at, but clearly should not be the last word, including the senior author of that study said, this should not be the last word in this subject.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you remembered to bring that up because that was another, you know, look, I've always personally thought a patient with a personal history of breast cancer, not to say, so we'll we'll come back to family history, personal history of breast cancer, with the exception of that one patient who was adamant. I mean, her words were, I would rather be on HRT than, I would rather be dead than not be on HRT. But I've always felt that that is, that is a really scary place to be.
1: One of the interesting things that we talk about in the in the heart chapter is precisely because so many women are surviving breast cancer and living for many years after breast cancer, that then their increased risk of heart disease in, uh, uh, increases, and so now there is a new specialty of cardio oncology, in which the issue is how do we assure the prolonged survival of our breast cancer patients who are now at risk of dying of heart disease
0: and, and Alzheimer's so, disease.
1: Exactly. Yes. And osteoporosis.
0: Yeah. So you're right. It's it is not something that we can just say, well, that's a narrow subset of women. If you've had breast cancer, we're going to take you off the table because we're neglecting, as you said, 19 out of 20 of these women, or certainly 9 out of 10 of them, are not going to die from breast cancer. At least
1: 5 million in the United States now. When Avram went to talk to the FDA to secure their approval for doing his study of administering HRT to his patients who had had breast cancer, one of the doctors on the committee said to him, what do you want to do this study for? Aren't all your patients going to die anyway? And Avram said, no, uh, person actually. person doesn't know
0: much about breast cancer. <laughs>
1: no. But he sat on the committee.
2: Yeah. so Actually, it was a she. Hmm. We eventually did get FDA approval to do the study, which we did for 14 years and reported the results every
0: year. What, what are the what are the, well, what, are it, the reports, it, what are the reports? What are the results as of today? it was a small
2: study, but it fit in with the other 14, mm-hmm. showing no increased risk of local recurrence, contralateral breast cancer, or distant recurrence among the women who took hormones compared to the women who didn't when they were matched stage for stage.
0: Oh, so okay, got it. Well, um, <laughs> I could go on, but I, I mean, I think I think the point I think the point's been made loud and clear. Again, I want to thank you for writing the book. I think this was uh, this is one of those books where. There's a lot of work that went into it. I mean, frankly, I think your 2009 paper is itself a great paper and itself is, was a lot of work. That's a ton of literature to review. And I do hope that, that women, men, anyone listening to this who knows a woman comes away at least thinking if they have a strong point of view on this, which many people do, that they could at least revisit that and take the time, you know, JFK said something, it's one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but the gist of it is we, we too often enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And uh, <laughs> yeah. he says it much more eloquently, but this is one of the case studies for that, right? There are way too many people that I speak with who immediately believe, unilaterally believe HRT is an anthema to life. And yet when you ask them why, they can't give you a single reason other than "Though W.H.I. said so.
2: There you are. A quote that I like is, the more you know, the less you fear.
0: Very well. And on that, I want to thank you guys for making the trip down here. And I want to wish you all the best as you continue to get this message out there.
1: Thank you, Thank you, Peter.
0: You can find all of this information and more at peteratiamd.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog at peteratiamd.com. Maybe the simplest thing to do is to sign up for my subjectively non-lame once a week email, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting papers I've read, and all things related to longevity, science, performance, sleep, etc. On social, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook all with the ID, Peter Atia MD. But usually Twitter is the best way to reach me to share your questions and comments. Now for the obligatory disclaimer, this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, I take conflicts of interest very seriously. For all of my disclosures, the companies I invest in and or advise, please visit peteratiyamd.com forward slash about.